Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Morning, Coa. Like you say, my name is Brandon. I'm sorry if I haven't had a chance to introduce myself to you yet. I hope you'll find me uh, after service or, or IU. Um, when we, we preach, we leave so much left unsaid. Um, there's so much I wish I could go into and keep drawing lines from this passage to today on, um, but we can't. Somehow we have this culture where we preach for 40 minutes only. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So Aaron and I will stay late and we'll, we'll preach to each other for longer, but I'll do the best I can the time we've got, friends. Keep praying for me. So if you're, if you're new here, we, we pick books of the Bible typically to kind of preach through. We do our best to uh, minimize us coming up with what we want to say. Okay. The idea is God has spoken and our work trying to do here is come here and look at it. And I tell you, my job here this morning primarily is to tell you what is going on in John chapter two, right? These very familiar verses. If you have any background in Christianity, you've heard of this, at least if not read the words, you've heard, yeah, water and the wine. Jesus did that once. And my aim this morning is to, I don't know, not try to share something with you unfamiliar or something with you that's like edgy or a new angle you've never considered before. It's not my goal. My goal is, why is this here? My goal is to, that Jesus did this for a reason and a purpose. John decided to write it down for a reason and a purpose. And now my job is to try to point you to that. And in the process of doing it, I have to go back and tell you a little bit about the gospel of John. So I haven't got a chance to preach through John yet either. So it's very convenient that to handle John 2... I must tell you the theme of John. So if you're just joining us, good news. You're going to be caught up. Okay. In chapter 1, verse 14, is kind of a theme, one of the theme verses of John. Very famous. John 1 is, has this prologue on it, some of the richest theology in all of the Bible, where verse 1 tells us, in the beginning was the word, the logos. And the logos was with God and Logos was God. Now that word is very critical. You have to go back and listen to Kyle's sermon on it to get a little more on it. The idea of God, the logic of God, the thought of God, the word of God, the power of God was God and was with God. Great Trinitarian language there. Go back and listen to that sermon if you'd like to learn more about the Trinity. But then verse 14 says that that word, that Logos, took on flesh and dwelt among us. The literal word there is tabernacled among us. The idea of the tabernacle, when Moses and the Israelites left Egypt, they wandered around the desert. The tabernacle was this roaming temple where the glory of God dwelt most specifically. And Moses would go in and meet with God face to face. The logos became flesh and tabernacled on earth. And John says, and we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son, begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's this theme verse that John says, Jesus came to earth, Jesus God took on flesh, took on humanity, and he dwelt on earth. The presence of God was here, and we got to see it. 
We get to see him. We get to see the glory of God. And John is writing for those of us who weren't there in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. We did not get to see the glory of God that way. We get to see it in this word of God. And let's go back to the very first sermon where Aaron went, jumped to chapter 20. There's this famous thematic line in the gospel of John. John says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Okay. You have to connect that verse. Please let me preach on uh, Doubting Thomas passage, okay? There's, you, there's these headings in your Bible that humans added after the fact, okay? They're there to help you, but they can get in the way. If you don't see the connection between Doubting Thomas, what Jesus says to him, Jesus says, do you believe because you got to see and touch me? Blessed are those who've not gotten to see or touch and still believe. These things are written so that you may believe. John is saying, do you want to see Jesus? Do you want to touch Jesus? Then come and read. Come and read. Come see these signs. Come see these pictures of who Jesus is. They are explanatory. They're meant to be evidence. They're meant to persuade you. He is real. He is worthy. He can be depended on. You ought to. You will find life in his name and you will not find it anywhere else. That is why Jesus has done these things he has. That's why John wrote them down. And then we come to chapter two and he says, do we have this verse? Verse 14, I believe. Uh, Verse 11. John says, this is the first of his signs that Jesus did in Galilee and revealed his glory. So the the huge purpose is that you would believe in Jesus. You would find life in his name, that you'd be persuaded. You'd, You'd understand, see that it's true. And now Jesus, John, they get ready to, to persuade you, to explain to you, to put up the first big sign saying, here's the Messiah, here's the son of God. And what's Jesus do? He turns water into wine. And so my big question this morning, what I hope we'll get out of this is, why is this the first sign? Right, your first impressions are so important. I've, I've gotten to do all kinds of uh, training on speaking and I'm supposed to put, you know, one, one of my uh, mentors, he said, public speaking is like flying an airplane. In the middle, anybody can do it. It's all about taking off and landing, right? And so I'm supposed to put more time in my intros and my conclusions than I do, okay? It's all about that, that hook at the beginning, right? First impressions with people, you meet them. I, I, uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm an entrepreneur. I've started a company, and it's all about my first impressions of my customers, the brand we're putting out there, right? Because it, it matters a lot. And Jesus, John definitely knew this, and he decided that he would first manifest his glory with, I'm not trying to belittle it. I'm going to take this all back in a second, but with a magic trick, Right? It's not magic, it's the power of God, but relative to all the other stuff he does, it's, he's not, this is not a crisis. It's a problem, okay? Running out of wine was a problem. It's a big faux pas 
In that time, you had multi-day parties and it was the bridegroom's responsibility and it was a big shame. Okay, it's a, it's a deal. But no one's dying. Okay, Jesus helps people see who have never seen before. People lose their children to death. The greatest tragedy a human can experience and Jesus raises them, right? Relative to that, why is water into wine the first impression? So that's my, that's my intro. That's what we're doing. Plane's in, plane is in the air now, all right? But before I get there, I'm going to do one other thing first. So that's the main goal. The main goal is, why is this the first sign? How does this reveal Jesus' glory? Okay. But I like to also touch on some other like side implication things, right? Where it's like, here are these topics that if you and I were debating them or talking about them, and we wanted to know the Christian perspective on them, we might go to John chapter 2 to inform us. So I'm just going to try to quickly make some passing comments on three different little topics, and then we'll get to the heart of the text. So secondary implications, number one. This is the simplest one of all. Um, and I struggle on what to say here. I said, the Bible does not require all people to abstain from alcohol. Um, I had something different there. Aaron rightly pointed out it was probably not the best way to say it. Um, the Bible does. Uh, in the Nazarite vow in the Old Testament, if people took that, they were to abstain from alcohol. And there's some other passages like that. But by and large, the point here is this is alcoholic wine. Okay? So there are conservative Bible translations that try to flatten that for some reason. It's a very minority of Christians who... who hold to being a teetotaler, that no one may ever have alcohol under any circumstances. Um, that's hard to defend from the Bible with passages like this. Now, most of you probably don't need me to make that point. It's my hunch. So I'll just highlight the other side of that coin. Drunkenness is called out explicitly as a sin. And as a freshman in college, I'd just been a Christian. I was in like the glossary index of uh, my NIV study Bible. And I remember seeing drunkenness. And I, you know, I flipped to it, and I just, I was shocked. I was shocked that it was mentioned explicitly in the Bible. Um, I just figured it was like other Christians had made up, made up stuff, like about dancing. You don't dance, right? Like, they just make things up sometimes. I figured this was one of them. It's not. Galatians chapter 5. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. For the works of the flesh are evidence, a long list, one of which is drunkenness. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians chapter 5. So, passing comment. Secondly, this one's bigger. I wish we could spend longer on it. Second peripheral implication is that no one has special access to Jesus, not even Mary. Okay? This line, there is so much ink spilled over this response from Jesus. Jesus, they're out of wine. ESV says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Okay, and there's uh, every English version puts it a little bit differently. That word woman is very hard to translate. As I read around and thought about it, I think the closest thing we have is in the South, we have this word ma'am. And in general, it's of respect. Say yes, ma'am, no ma'am to someone whom you are showing respect to. But it also can be used. My daughter Piper may say something, uh, hey, give me a napkin to me. And I might respond with, Ma'am? So it's not disrespect to her, 
or anything, but it is a, hey, what, careful how you just said that. Okay, and then that phrase, what does this have to do with me? That is, it's used all over the place in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, this is the only place it's used where it's not in the mouths of demons. The only other place this is said is when Jesus goes to speak with demons and they say, what do you have to do with me, son of man? Right, like it's this kind of, it's a distancing. It's a bit of a stiff arm is what I heard one pastor say to use this phrase. Now, I'm not gonna go for long on this, but just the idea that if anyone had a special place, right? You have this non-wealthy woman who's a Jew, who's his mother. And of course, some Christians think very, uh, Mary has a very special access. And this is one place we see all of us, all of us are in the same place, fundamentally respect to God. We all, Mary needed Jesus as a savior, just as much as any of the rest of us. Jesus was Mary's Lord just as much as he was to any of the rest of us. So if you're on that topic and you're thinking about that wider debate that maybe you know more about, here's a good text to come and meditate on. Thirdly, um, third, secondary implication, miracles are real. Um, When I was a young Christian, I cut my teeth for five, six years. My primary Christian community, for lack of a better way to say it, uh, was a much more liberal Christian community. And it was very weird, the commentators and stuff I would read, and they would bend over backwards. There was different versions of it, but the most common was just trying to make it sound like the Bible wasn't claiming miracles happened. <laughs> right? They're trying to like show, look, this is a respectful book. You think it's weird, you modern scientific people. One of the reasons you can trust it is it's not claiming that there are any miracles. It may sound ridiculous to you, but I can point you to many a scholar's. Um, it's ridiculous. This is, in fact, a miracle. I just, I'll just i make one comment on this because it's so basic, it's so simple. If this happens to be a struggle for you and you go, no, I, I mean, I, I love what we've been able to accomplish using science, using modern methods. Look at the help we've done to humanity, looking at the scientific method, being able to make hypotheses, look for evidence, look for general uh, patterns that we can now make predictions for the future. That's how you end up with phones and medicine and stuff like that. It is great. And if I believe in miracles, I'm somehow undermining that. I'm discrediting that. And there's so much I want to say on this, but just the simplest, most basic one is, guys, when we do math, and we do, uh, not just math, excuse me, when we do physics, when we do equations, and make predictions, if you've ever taken physics, uh, you know, there's very famous boxes on inclines. Anything, I have one nodding head. I don't know why. I've never seen any boxes on inclines, but this is what we do all the time. And you get your little normal force vectors, and you break it up into your horizontal and vertical. Okay. There are assumptions, it's called, it's a closed system. That gets mentioned to you somewhere in elementary school that in science, we have to assume a closed system and now we can do our math and predictions on it, okay? And when I got all my answers right on those physics tests growing up, okay, it was because there were no circumstances in which someone came and kicked the box off the incline, right? The moment there was some kind of outside force, my predictions would no longer be correct, okay? What happens when that box grows and that box grows and that box, and that box of your system of which you're trying to do your predictions encompasses the entire universe? At that point, there are no outside actors, except for one. 
Guys, miracles are very simple. God is the outside actor. He's not breaking the laws of physics. Okay? He's just an outside actor on a world of order, of patterns, of which he has made. Okay? There's nothing here that is anti-scientific method to believe actor that when he steams fit in his perfect wisdom and love, he will intercede and he'll kick the box off the ramp if he needs to. Okay. All right. Now, that's not why you're here. You're here because you want to know, you already had the question. Why is this Jesus's first miracle? Why is this the first thing that he does. And it's tough to explain this, friends, because uh, so much with narrative, preaching narrative, it's like, it's kind of like explaining a joke, right? Right. That's so much with art, is you look at this, you look at a story, you look at this painting, and like you start analyzing a pixel. That's a little bit what we have to do here. But hopefully, after we lay out the clues, you will be able to step back and you'll be able to see what it is that Jesus has painted for us in this miracle. Okay. All right, first, to answer it, I've got, it kinda, I've got these other two questions in mind. The, the first one especially, why does Jesus answer his mom this way? Okay, it's called a non sequitur is what you say. If, I, if you ask me, hey, what time am I supposed to be there tomorrow? And then, and then you say, uh, my favorite color is gray. It just, what does that, I, I asked you what time I need to be there. That has nothing to do with what I just asked you. Hey, Jesus, they're out of wine. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. What? That was my entire preparation for this, was why does he respond like that? That has to be a key clue. And he acts like he's not going to go do anything about it with that response. And then he does. And then he does it kind of interestingly, uniquely. He doesn't merely supply wine. Okay, so that's what we're looking at. These two questions. In light of the big ones. This is a pattern for Jesus, by the way. He does this with, uh, in, in like, you've come to me about this earthly thing, but I'm going to answer you about a bigger thing. Remember in John 4, we're going to get there. Hey, if you knew who's asking you, like, can you give me, how can you say, ask, give me some water, right? Give me water. He's like, he goes, well, you should, you should have asked me. I would have given you living water. And he takes whatever you're talking about and he takes it bigger, takes it deeper. Jesus is doing the same thing here. Yeah, wine at a party. Ah, opportunity. Let's take this deeper. We're going to look at four clues to figure out what's going on here in the text. So first clue is in verse four, this idea of the hour. Jesus said to her, woman, what does it have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You can do your little search of hour in the gospel of John, and he uses it more than one way for sure. But by and large, hour continually refers to particular moment, the hour of his death on the cross. Let's look at uh, the next slide. I think I've got several of the passages, maybe not quite all of them, that refer where Jesus uses the phrase hour in this manner. And let's look at one of them. In chapter 12, I referred to this one in our mission sermon. I think this is huge because it's another purpose statement. This is not just merely the hour equals my death. But an interpretation of the death, what does the death signify? What's it accomplish? And by the way, that's the main reason I'm here. Let's read it. 
Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. He's about to be arrested. Okay. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So this is not up for debate. This is not an opinion. When Jesus refers to the hour, he specifically has in mind the hour of his death. When he is lifted up from the earth to draw all people to himself, when he will be the seed that goes into the earth to die, to bear much fruit. That's clue one. That's the hour. Secondly, second clue is rites, Jewish rites of purification. Not he goes and gets jars that happen to be at the wedding and now we're speculating on what those jars really were there for. John lays it out for us plainly. These are not drinking vessels. These are bathing vessels. Okay? Now, I can't go back and quickly and easily help you see what is this cleansing and purification stuff about? It is not simple. There's no one place in the Old Testament show it. There are these moral laws in the Old Testament. There are judicial laws in the Old Testament. There are ceremonial laws in the Old Testament, and they're all tangled together and woven, and it's not demarcated out very cleanly. And then you can follow up and say, well, why are these ceremonial laws there? And there's no clean answer to that. Some of them seem to have to do with hygiene. Some of them seem to do with being a polemic against surrounding countries. Some of them we have no guess that I've read that's persuasive at all. But I can tell you this. Lots of the cleansing and purification laws that have to do with people, laws around humans, they almost always seem to have something to do, some kind of picture, some kind of analogy with respect to the curse in Genesis 3. Okay? So lepers are unclean. This idea that there's disease in the world and decay. Dead things are unclean. And anyone who has a flow of blood from an injury or most commonly what it talks about is women in their monthly time. Okay, There's uncleanness. It's not the same thing as sinful by a long shot. Okay, But it's meant to be this, at least it's meant to be this, this picture. This picture for something. This picture in this case of fallenness. And there are all these rules around how one becomes clean. All these kinds of washings almost always have to do with water. And I did lots of searching on like, and then were there big tubs at weddings all the time? Like, do we know this? And uh, I'll spare you what all I found. It's not real clean. Sometimes, yes, there was definitely lots of evidence of lots of ritual cleansings around weddings for people about to partake in food or most commonly for the husband and the wife. Uh, all sorts of stuff around there. So it's not uncommon to have these cleansing vessels there. Why is this here? What mm, do I want to say it? No, we'll skip that for now. Okay, this is just a hint. He uses cleansing vessels. He uses for the Jewish rites of purification. That's what he goes and gets. Bathtubs, 20 to 30 gallons. Thirdly, thirdly, most obviously, second most obviously, Wine. Wine is critical, friends. It shows up all over the Bible. It's the master of the feast. He's tasted the water. Now it's become wine. Jesus had turned the water into wine. 
wine in the Bible shows up over and over and over again. It's an amazing symbol. Um, First one is, wait for it. Yes, it is a symbol of future salvation. It always, not always, it often in the Old Testament is coupled with this idea of Messiah, this coming kingdom, this idea of the nations being brought in. Here's this one. This is probably the best one I saw. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow of aged wine, well-refined. And what does that symbolize? Why? What is this celebration about? He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of all his people. He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be set on that day. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Wine at the wedding for celebration. We know this. Every culture in humanity has had some kind of strong drink associated with celebration. Another symbol, though. We don't like talking about this one. Wine is used all over the place in the Bible as a symbol of wrath. The wine press of God's Wrath. Here's just one very scary one from the book of Revelation. Who wrote Revelation, by the way? Oh, John. That's right. The Apostle John. That's very relevant. Buckle up. Here's not the most important one for our sermon today, but relevant for this. He will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full. This is not talking about Jesus. This is talking about those whom do not turn and find their salvation in Jesus. He will drink the wine of God's wrath, pour full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. It's one of the scary verses in the Bible. I almost didn't do it. I'm scared to bring up passages like this and not give them much time and attention. But I also don't want to apologize for God's word either. So hopefully you'll get to hear more about this as we talk today. And if, if there are more questions, guys, you must, you must, it's parentheses. The most frustrating thing in my Christian life has been non-Christians and Christians walking away from friendship and community because they won't engage in conversation. I know I'm not the easiest person to talk with. I know most other humans aren't. And we, de- we don't like talking to people we disagree with. We think can just win arguments and whatever. Like, but don't walk away. Tell people your, your challenges, what you're struggling with, what you disagree with. Like, let us know. 40 minutes is not long. Okay? So... The symbol of wrath, all these passages have it in there. Uh, It's common, and there's a reason for it, because go to the next one. It's a symbol of blood. Blood is such an important symbol. Uh, Obviously, it's important literally, but it's an important symbol in the Bible as well, and that symbol has a symbol of wine. And here are some passages with it. I have that Matthew 26 passage. That's from the Lord's Supper. Do you know John does not account, he does not record the institution of the Lord's Supper? That's not in the Gospel of John. But you have John chapter 6, which I won't spoil for whomever's going to preach that. And you have the wedding at Cana. Water into wine. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing here, and I think John does too. Why he's recording this. Wine is a symbol for blood. 
in the Bible. And I will tell you more about why as we keep going. So, last, fourth clue. I left it blank because I needed just a little anticipation, right? Just a little. Guys, it's the most obvious one. It's the most important one. And it's the one that really, it was because many of you come to church before, you know where I'm going with the other three, okay? Already. But this is one where, imagine reading this for the first time. Imagine being a Jew. Imagine being a pagan and reading for this for the first time. I've already jumped ahead to John 20. We're jumping all over the place to get to know. They, this is anticipation building. Guys, this hour that's being talked about, this purification ceremony, this wine, it's all happening at a wedding. Yes, amen. <laughs> it's happening at a wedding. Guys, when you're at a wedding, almost all of us at almost every wedding, we do what? We think about our wedding. Whether you are single and you're wondering, will I be married one day? What will it be like potentially? Or you are married and you are thinking back to yours and what you liked about it, what you wish was different, comparing it to the one happening now. Jesus, they're out of wine. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. Why does he say that? Because he's daydreaming about his wedding. His wedding and the, the, the union of his sacrifice on the cross where he takes the cup the cup of the wine of God's wrath, and he drinks it down in full to the dregs where he sheds his blood, the blood that can really purify, the blood that really cleanses, not temporarily, not as a symbol, but the actuality, right? That's the hour to cleanse a people for himself that will be his bride. We're not making this up. We can't make it up. John chapter three, John the Baptist explicitly refers to Jesus as the bridegroom. I think that's on a slide. I think, yes. But then Revelation, who wrote Revelation? John, the apostle John. In chapter one, John the Baptist introduced Jesus twice. Here it comes. And what's he say? He says, behold the lamb of God. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then read what John says in Revelation 19. He says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are all those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Friends, you are invited. You are invited. You may come and you may be wed. Guys, as a, as a dude, you know, that was not my first picture in the Bible I related to. Oh, I get to marry Jesus. He's my, I'm his wife, right? But think of the, it's the commitment, the union, like that he is that committed to you. He promises Oh, marriage, 
it's its own picture in itself. I'll just, we got 40 minutes. We got to stop there, guys. You must connect this idea, friends, of the sacrifice on the cross. He doesn't just have to do it. He gets to do it. He wants to do it. He's, he needs you. He wants you. Like, it's hard to find the right language. Not in that he's dissatisfied or anything with his relationship with the Father. But he pursues you like a faithful dude wanting that girl. And he's creative and, and, and like you just want to, you, you want to, people ask like, like how make this applicable and stuff. And I want to, I want to, but I'm just like, imagine, imagine after Tim proposed, the response was, hey, what's the point? What's the point? What's the point of you asking me to marry you? It's, it's, it's a fair question, but like that's not the time to ask it. It's, the point is love. The point is commitment. Look at all I've done, the orchestration of the event, all that I'm being promised about what's coming. Okay? Jesus does this. This is the first sign because, you know what else isn't in John's gospel? Parables. John never records Jesus teaching a parable. But he does record many parables that Jesus lived out with his own life. Jesus turning water into wine using ceremonial jars for the rites of purification at a wedding is a parable of all that Jesus is coming to do for you. He's setting the scene. When you listen to an overture for a musical and it's giving you little taste, little samples of what's to come, or when you read a book uh, like The Scarlet Letter and the first chapter is just about this like prison door and stuff and like what is going on, but it's foreshadowing. It's setting you up for what is to come. It's teasers, it's taste to help you enjoy, to help you interpret properly, to persuade you it's good. Okay, to persuade you it's real. Friends, humans couldn't have made this stuff up. That's why this is bride. Jesus is the greater bridegroom. He doesn't fail at his duty to supply wine at the wedding. Okay, Jesus provides the real wine. Not just wine that we'd use as an escape or a wine that we're going to partake in because we're trying to fit in and be liked. It's a wine that is the true substance of the things that we try to latch onto are just merely shadows of, and it will not let you down. It persists over and over. He supplies his blood that we may be cleansed. He's the one who ushers in the new covenant, the new wine. Water, there's nothing wrong with water. It's grace upon grace, okay? He supplies wine on top of it. It's even better. He's that, ah, is the last verse of chapter one. He's the bridge. He's the ladder on which angels ascend and descend. He's bringing heaven to earth. For us now, guys, trust him, believe in him. My only ask for you this morning is like, if you tasted something, if you saw something and you said, actually, that was a little more glorious than I thought it could have been. Maybe, maybe Christian, non-Christian, like, then what now will you do later today? What will you do tomorrow? Will you go back to the little tiny glories down here? And is that where you will put the dominant focus and effort and energy of your life? Wake up first thing in the morning and what will you do? 
Or will you go say, actually, maybe there's more here. Maybe John is unfolding for me something that I have not seen as I ought to have seen before. And I'm going to go and I'm going to look some more. I'm going to see if I can see even more. If you need help with that, you let us know. You let this church know. It's what we're here to do together. Okay, I'll give you very strong specifics on it. So that's my prayer. Let me pray for us. 